Good morning. I'm really happy to be able to share this morning. I wish that I could see all of you, but in the words of my Uncle Ty, at least you're getting to see me. So maybe that counts for something. (laughs) So like Matthew said, we are going to be at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15 today. Um, And about the time I started prepping to teach this, I started noticing a pattern in my life, and that is that I cannot make a good choice for the life of me right now. Um, I'm very irritable. I'm very lethargic. I am picking fights with my husband. I'm spending a lot of time on Instagram. I can do a couple of TikTok dances now, kind of, but you don't get to see those. Um, I'm spending a lot of time on all these distractions and just kind of getting through the day. And back when the lockdown order started, I wrote in my journal, I want to use this season to dig deeper into the word and like deepen my prayer life and make sure I'm walking every day and really focus on um, having healthy disciplines. And the longer this has gone on, you know, we're in year 12 now, it just seems like those healthy choices don't matter at all. Um, And that's actually something I've struggled with my whole life. I've been a worrier since I was a little girl. Um, And then when I was 19, I um, developed depression, uh, which is something that runs in my family. And, And so I can pinpoint throughout my life when I would go through these seasons of nothing matters. Why, why bother trying? Why bother making good grades? Um, and so then when you couple those mental health tendencies with an actual global disaster, all bets are off. It just seems like nothing matters right now. And I would hazard a guess that even if you are normally an optimist or very good at cultivating healthy habits, or even if you've never struggled with your mental health, right now, you probably feel the same way to an extent. I mean, it feels like we are in this never-ending pause. It feels like I'm in a surreal daydream where one day I can wake up and just go to the grocery store. It feels like I'm on a treadmill and I don't like running in the first place and I really don't like running on treadmills because you're moving and moving but you're not going anywhere. And really, and I don't want to downplay the effects of mental illness or trauma when I say this, but I really think this mindset, this feeling of futility boils down to one thing, and that is a lack of hope. I think when we can't imagine a future that is good, why does the present matter? And right now, we're facing this global crisis that's unprecedented for so many of us where we can't plan too far ahead. We can grocery shop week to week. Um, Maybe we can think two weeks out if you're financially secure right now. But I mean, we don't know what the fall is going to look like or next winter or next year. We just don't know. So last week, we learned that Jesus' resurrection doesn't just bring our souls back to life. It is meant to impact our lives in this world, too. We learned that there's no moral divide, like the spirit is good and everything physical is bad. We learned that that's just not true for the life of a Christian. So in light of futility, of hopelessness, of our present moment, what does the resurrection mean for us right now in how we live our lives? 
I always say that I want theology with meat on its bones. Like if you have fried chicken for me and I'm from deep East Texas, we know fried chicken, don't bring me a scrawny chicken. I want something with meat on its bones that I really have to eat and you don't wanna eat it on the first date because you'll look gross. And, and I want my theology, I want my walk with Jesus to be, to be hearty like that. So what does that mean for us that have the Holy Spirit in us because of Jesus when we embody resurrection? At the very end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, and in true Paul fashion, it's very wordy, it's very difficult to read out loud, it's a tongue twister. So I'm going to summarize some of it for us. Paul says, essentially, that flesh and blood can't inherit God's kingdom. And this is starting in verse 50. Those who die before Jesus comes back will be resurrected, but some sort of transformation has to happen for those who are still alive when Jesus comes back. And lastly, when this mysterious transformation happens, there is um, an anthem that we will sing, and this is picking up in verse 54. Death has been swallowed up by victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? In the message version of the Bible, it says, death, who is afraid of you now? So picking up in verse 56, the sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God that he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. So there's a lot to unpack in these eight verses. There are so many ways that you could approach it. But what we'll focus on today is our command at the end. Stand firm, let nothing move you, and give yourselves to the work of the Lord. I call this the hopeful resistance that Jesus' followers are called to. But before we talk about hopeful resistance, we need to know what we are resisting. We need to know why this matters. And the answer is, we are resisting death. Actual death. Paul says the sting of sin is death. Sorry, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. He likes to write tongue twisters, that Paul. So death is our enemy. And you can think of sin as the weapon that death uses to inflict pain and suffering and every bad thing that humanity has ever faced. An enemy with no weapon is just harmless. You don't have to be scared of them. But when death has the weapon of sin, it causes everything that's bad. The sickness, the decay, the natural disasters. Sin isn't just what we do. It's not just your bad moments. Sin is the state of brokenness that creation sits in right now. So death isn't just something, <clears throat> excuse me, death isn't just something everyone goes through. It's not just an event. It is our greatest enemy. Death is active. It's not passive. It is constantly wreaking havoc on humanity through sin. Death is the condition and final destination of a world separated from God. And not only is death the cause of our earthly problems, but it is literally the thing that keeps us from God's kingdom. 
That's our one big enemy because things bound up in time and sin cannot enter the eternal or the perfect kingdom of God apart from a miraculous transformation. That's why the living and the dead have to be somehow transformed to be brought into eternity with God. Death is too serious an enemy for God to let it remain in any form. We have a complicated relationship with suffering and death in the United States, I think. Our prevailing cultural narrative is if you work hard, if you do right, if you mind your own business, then your life should be fine. You're on a linear trajectory upward. And honestly, I see in a lot of the church that our Christian narrative isn't that different. We just decide to give our lives to Jesus, and then we expect a linear trajectory upward during our earthly lives. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about death until it is staring us in the face. We don't like to face our mortality, our lack of control, or the fact that horrible things like pandemics just happen sometimes. Remember that our world sits in a state of brokenness. I mean, for a large number of Americans, there has not been a constant inexplicable suffering. There's no lengthy war fought here. There's no famine. And when groups who are oppressed do meaninglessly and continually suffer and they speak out, they're often told, well, that was the past. Or don't bring that up and be divisive because there isn't room in this prevailing worldview to really lean into the pain of others. We want to be hopeful and faithful, but all we are doing is feeding the idea of toxic positivity. We always want to look for the silver lining. We always want to play the suffering Olympics, which is where you say, well, I'm having a really bad day, but I mean, it could be worse, so I shouldn't feel bad. It's not healthy perspective. It's a constant belittling of our hardship. And then when death in any form comes for someone we love, we just hear platitudes. We hear everything happens for a reason. We hear it will make you stronger and so on. And in the face of miscarriages and cancer and broken marriages and shattered dreams, all from death actively reaching into our lives, we say these shallow things that don't help anybody. Um, New York pastor Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in it, he calls this mindset the Western mindset. And he posits that we are the least able in the entire world, least able to deal with suffering because we don't find meaning in it. That's why we look away. That is why we repeat meaningless phrases. That is why suicide and depression and loneliness are so prevalent. We are suffering and we don't know how to talk about it. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that thinking about death this way is a resolute refusal to tell the truth about the real and savage break, the horrible denial of the goodness of human life that every death involves. We have to remember that death is our enemy. Death is not our friend. In fact, although death is something that most humans will face, apart from those who are alive when Jesus comes back, it is unnatural. 
It is the death of glory because humans were made in God's image. When God created the world, it existed in a state of shalom. And shalom is a Hebrew word, and it describes this beautiful, harmonious peace, unparalleled peace between God and humans and humans and each other and humans and the world they lived in. Death was not a part of creation, but it was the price that Adam and Eve paid when they chose to disobey God. They broke the shalom. Now you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, Matthew shared that all humans, until they start to follow Jesus, are considered under Adam, we're considered under sin. And then once we follow Jesus, we are under Jesus. And I know some people have a hard time with that. All these people, thousands of years ago, made this choice and now we all have to suffer. So I have a challenge for you, if that's how you feel. Just go read the first five books of the Old Testament, check out all the laws that God gave the Israelites, and you can stop reading the minute you find a law that you've broken. And if you make it through all five, well, I'm gonna say you didn't read that closely. (laughs) There's just no way that we could follow all of those laws. So we have all invited death into our lives. We have. Now, Maisie, I hear you saying, that's real bad news, I don't like this, I come to church to like feel better, this isn't encouraging. You're right, this is bad news. (laughs) Death is terrible, it's our enemy. We're not supposed to like our enemies, that's how they work. But while death is our greatest and most powerful enemy, we have to remember that Jesus' resurrection means that it's a defeated enemy. Have you ever noticed that we use the word tension a lot when we talk about living as a Jesus follower? We're gonna use it again. So the tension of death in humanity is that we cannot downplay or disregard death, but we can live victoriously because of the resurrection. There can be a redemption of all of the suffering that death causes. God can still use it for his kingdom somehow. Our suffering can make us compassionate, or it could make us small and hard and bitter. But if we serve a God who redeems everything, then we are called to much more than bitterness. Dr. Kate Bowler is a professor of of Christian history at Duke Divinity School. When she was 35, right after having her first child, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Now, Dr. Bowler had written the definitive work on the history of the prosperity gospel in America. And the prosperity gospel is the idea that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for his people. And that through your faith and through your positive speech and donations to religious causes, you can increase your material health and wealth. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) So, Dr. Bowler did not knowingly ascribe to the prosperity gospel, thinking. But when she was diagnosed with her terminal cancer, she realized that she did not have a paradigm for the pointless suffering that she was experiencing. She actually noticed that her thoughts about suffering aligned with the prosperity gospel. She thought, I'm good, I follow God, why do I deserve this? Now five years later, Dr. Baller is in remission, but she continues to live with a lot of health problems because of her battle with cancer. So why do I bring her up? Well, first, Dr. Baller is a great example about how we can have suffering redeemed. 
God gave her eyes to see and showed her a need in the church, the need to address toxic positivity and find real, true ways to grieve and live in hope. Second, Dr. Baller and I are both cynics. So I love her honesty and her way, um, she's very wary of words like victory and hope and living victoriously because so often those words are code for positive thinking or living a good Christian life that don't leave room for suffering and deep grief. They don't acknowledge death. That really resonates with me. I hate platitudes, I hate Hallmark cards. I'm a natural pessimist and I see through you. I know that that positivity wasn't real. So if you're on that boat at all, and maybe even if you're not, I want you to set aside your notions of victory and hope for right now, because I think these two things are grittier and worthier and more beautiful than we realize. So in some Christian traditions, they believe that on the Saturday, Jesus was dead. So after Good Friday, Jesus died. And in the Bible, there's not any talk of that Saturday. But some Christian traditions believe that Jesus literally went into hell, beat up Satan, and came back to life. There are paintings of this, and Jesus is like waving this sword. He's coming for the demons. It's awesome. It's called the harrowing of hell. You can Google it. Now, there's no biblical evidence that this is literally what happened. But we do know the essence of this is true. This great enemy of death is coming for all of us. It came for Jesus. And Jesus came back to life effectively defeating death. Death is the most definitive end that we as humans know. We cannot fix that. We cannot rectify it. But Jesus came back from the dead, y'all. He did it. And, And so what does that mean? I mean, if you think about it, we don't undo death, and so what does it mean that Jesus did? I think that means even in the middle of time, even in the middle of the moments between creation and when Jesus comes back at the end, in the middle of our lives, in the middle of whatever suffering we're in, resurrection can happen. The point of Jesus' resurrections was to restore everything to the Father. Now, the idea of resurrection wasn't unfamiliar to Jesus' earliest followers, but they expected it to come at the very end. They did not expect this huge pivot in the middle of the story when they watched death be reversed. They were not ready for it. Right in the very middle of time, resurrection happened, and they knew that resurrection meant that God was at work. Jesus defeating death was the very first restored thing in the ushering in of God's kingdom. And that began the work that we are called to today. In the Bible, Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruit of the kingdom. I like to think of it like a tomato plant. That first tomato comes out, and if that's the only tomato on your plant, you know you have a problem but you probably pick that tomato, you eat it, tomatoes are so much better when you grow them yourself, and then the next day you're swimming in tomatoes. They just keep blooming on this plant. Well, that's what the resurrection of Jesus is like. He was not meant to be the first and only and last thing that was resurrected and restored. The message version of the Bible um, phrases our calling like this. 
With all of this going for us, friends, knowing that Jesus is victorious over death, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Jesus started the restoration, and that work continues with us. Scripture calls us ambassadors, workers of the harvest, and children of the day. And the tension, again, is that Jesus is resurrected, but our world is not fully restored. So we are called to be people of the resurrection, and the calling of resurrection people is restoration. We are called to be people of the resurrection, and the calling of resurrection people is restoration. And this means we have to care about the restoration of shalom, that harmonious peace that God created in Eden. In her book, The Very Good Gospel, Lisa Sharon Harper says, the principal outcome of God's governance is goodness. Scripture tells us that the enemy and sin have free reign over creation right now. But we are people who know that Jesus is our king. We live under his goodness, and we should act that out in our world. Our lives should be marked by God's good governance. And we cannot be people of restoration if we are living like death gets to have the last word, or like death is some benign force. We have to call out death where we see it. Earlier I mentioned that there are systemically oppressed groups in the United States, like our black brothers and sisters or the LGBTQ community, um, and, and the church as a whole does not have a good record of caring for or about these groups of people. I am so thankful that at the Hills we have so many people that do care, and they work for the good of the oppressed. They live out the calling of resurrection people. See, we have to name evils like white supremacy, like exploitative economic systems, like poverty, like abuse. We have to name the death within ourselves, the anger, the prejudice, the selfishness, the anxiety, the self-righteousness. We have to name death and look it in the eye and battle it because we know that it is not worthless to do so. Resurrection means that dead things are restored back to life. It is quite literally what we were made to do. And before you say that naming injustice doesn't matter, think of this. If God didn't create it and call it good, then it is something the resurrection of Jesus is meant to reverse. God did not create racism or poverty or illness or death. Whether this brokenness has come on you by choice or not, if it was not part of the original shalom, Jesus is coming for it. And it is our job, it is our calling to work against it. And it's hard, right? Like this is massively ambitious. Who are we to think that, that we can stare down death and say not today? But this is not any more massively ambitious than God sending his son to live and die and come back to life and restore creation to God's very own self. It is no more ambitious than that. It is part of that plan. Brothers and sisters, we are called to look at this present moment in the great story of God and live prophetically in light of the risen Jesus. Now, prophetically doesn't mean we're telling the future. 
It doesn't mean I can see what's gonna happen tomorrow. A few minutes ago, I said I have no clue what's gonna happen at the end of the week. But it does mean we can see what the future holds. We know what's in the future. The thing about hope is it has to have an object. It can't just be this vague idea in our heads. Hope has to be placed in something. And we can't hope in humans, because we would have gotten it right by now if humans were going to get it right. No, hope is something as solid as an anchor for our souls. The writer of Hebrew calls hope that and says that hope, this anchor, is firm and secure, and our hope is the risen Jesus. Anchored out in the future, but through the Holy Spirit, anchored right here and now with us. Kate Bowler also says that hope is the story we tell ourselves about the future. And if we can't imagine a good future, we are doomed to live hopelessly or pretend that our struggle against death in the here and now doesn't matter. But here's the truth about the future. The resurrected Jesus is there. And for now, he has tasked us with living like he already reigns on this earth. Now in February, it was much easier to think of ways to battle the darkness. We could go to marches, we could volunteer, we could go visit our friends. We were in contact with our coworkers and neighbors who might not follow Jesus. But now what does it look like when we're largely confined to our homes? I said I would give you some theology with some meat on its bones. So um, here are some ways that you could fight against death right now. You could call a friend. You could bake a treat or deliver a dinner to someone just because. You could do a porch visit. Just make sure you're sitting the requisite six feet apart. You could create and share something beautiful. If you own children's books, you could call up some friends that have kids and do a story time. You could buy, <laughs> we don't own children's books at the Mayfield House, so. You could buy extra food at the store and give it to the Greater Park Hill Community Food Bank or the Food Bank of the Rockies. If you're still financially able, you could give to relief funds. But I don't think that the works of God are only about what we do for others. I think honoring ourselves as God's creation is part of the work of God, too. So if you are in a place of loneliness or anxiety or depression or economic uncertainty, don't let shame tell you that you need to do more or that you're failing at the pandemic. That is the enemy lying to you. My friend, even there you can resist darkness. Somehow as we work with God to restore all things, even getting out of bed and brushing your teeth is resistance against death. Reaching out and telling someone you need help is resisting darkness. Taking a walk or taking a shower is resisting darkness. Those acts of self-care are saying, there is a day coming where loneliness and depression will be made right. There is a day, sorry, that I will be whole. And I am acting in hope for that day. Because of Jesus' resurrection, that reversal of death, everything we do matters. Every act we do that honors God, that honors creation, that honors other humans, is a step on the path of restoration Jesus began on an Easter morning long ago. This is the promise that someday all the wrongs will be made right, God reigns, and our hope will be realized. 
I think of the Chronicles of Narnia when they have a song about um, when Aslan comes back, it will be spring again. And I'm really sad I didn't write that down to quote for you because it's beautiful. (laughs) But until then, until God reigns and our hope is realized, I urge you, my friends, live as people of restoration, knowing that each thing we do in the name of Jesus matters as a work of the Lord, ushering people into the kingdom of God and waiting for the day that he returns and makes everything new.